Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. It's shaping up to be a big week in the Brexit story. No, trust me, it really is. And I'll be talking to Dennis Staunton, our London editor, about that shortly. But first this week, it's to the political crisis in Germany, which was diffused on Monday night when Chancellor Angela Merkel came to an agreement with her interior minister, Horst Seehofer, on asylum policy. The crisis was diffused, but is it over? Derek Scully is our Berlin correspondent and he joins me now from there. Um, Derek, there have been a lot of twists and turns in this story over the past few days, so I think a recap in, in how we got here might be in order. It, it's something of a family dispute between Angela Merkel's CDU, the main party of government in Germany, and its Bavarian sister party, the CSU, uh, with which it has had an alliance going back over 70 years. What went wrong over the past couple of weeks in the relationship between these two very long-standing allies? What's been going wrong has been going wrong really since 2015. You might remember back then, uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel uh, responded to the refugee crisis uh, in sort of a liberal open-door policy and let over a million people into the country. They came into the Germany via Bavaria, and the Bavarian sister party of Angela Merkel, they're called the CSU, they were always very wary of this. They were even very angry at this, and they, they felt that their voters would not tolerate this. And uh, for the last three years, they've been fighting over this. They've had one compromise after another that have always blown apart. And the the Bavarians have an election coming up in October, and they figured that unless they come up with some sort of a crackdown, some sort of a closed border policy towards asylum seekers, that they're going to lose lots of support to the new far-right party. And um, so they pushed back against Angela Merkel, and they said, we can't continue with this policy, and even if numbers have dropped, we need to show our voters that we are a law and order party, that we have the situation on the border under control, and that 2015 can't happen again. So what we've had in the last couple of weeks was uh, the Bavarians pushing back against Merkel and saying, either you do something at European level to uh, ensure that uh, we're not going to be flooded with asylum seekers again, or we're going to do it ourselves. We're going to close down the border to asylum seekers, in particular asylum seekers who have registered elsewhere in the European Union and people who have no papers. And Angela Merkel then pushed back against that and she said, I don't want any unilateral action. If one country in the European Union starts playing around with uh, the uh, Schengen open border system, we don't know where that's going to end. There could be a domino effect. It could collapse. And with that, throw the European integration project into a new crisis that we certainly don't need with Brexit. So we had this standoff in the centre-right. It was about immigration, but it was also about power and how much of a, how much right-wing politics can their alliance take, uh, and how much of Merkel's centrist approach, sort of a pragmatic approach she's had in the last year, is that still timely, given everything that's happening in the world, particularly with the refugee crisis. And then there, the, the crisis seemed to be over or easing last Friday night when Angela Merkel returned from the EU summit in Brussels, and she said, you know, she had secured a deal on asylum, an EU-wide deal, which at least matched what the CSU was looking for. And initially the signs were good and there were some comments, off the record comments from CSU senior figures saying, you know, yeah, this, this looks like a good deal. But then, then things unravelled again over the weekend. So what went wrong then between Friday night, say, and, and, and Monday? Well, I think the Bavarians realised that what Merkel reached was they gave her two weeks to pull something off and she pulled off quite a lot. She got agreement at EU level for a political agreement for uh, some sort of asylum uh, processing camps within the European Union and also an agreement that they would seek out partners outside the European Union, possibly in Northern Africa, who would also offer uh, territory for such camps. And then there were other smaller bilateral deals with countries like Greece and uh, 
uh, Spain that if they uh, that they would agree to take back asylum seekers that had registered first for asylum in Greece and and uh, Spain but had moved on to Germany. So she pulled off quite a lot. But the Bavarians said, yes, this all looks very well, but it's political agreement. We have an election in October. We don't. We aren't confident that every, anything you've agreed, particularly with the summer break coming up, is going to be uh, is going to be active by then, and our voters are going to hammer us. So they pushed back and they said, no, that isn't enough. We want more. So that's what happened on Monday night. And the interior minister, who's also the head of this Bavarian party, the CSU, he threatened his resignation. He said, uh, either we do something or I resign. He said, I'm not I'm not going to uh, put my neck on the line for this. They already got punished last year in the federal election. Another uh, another election humiliation in state elections in October would really be too much for the Bavarian CSU because they really are Bavaria. They've been in power in Bavaria almost continuously since uh, the end of the Second World War. They have an absolute majority, but this sort of seemingly soft line uh, on, on law and order and on borders has really rattled their voters and many of their voters have gone over to the far right. Unless they pull them back, unless they reduce the far right vote, the CSU won't get back into power with an absolute majority. And for them, that would be a political catastrophe. And then after all that, Derek Merkel did meet with her interior minister, Seehofer, of the CSU on Monday night. And they came up with some kind of a deal which essentially has saved the government for now. What's in that deal? Yes, the de- details are really just emerging and it's, it's not really quite clear how it will be implemented in practice. What we know now is uh, at the moment there are three major border crossings between Austria and Germany. And these three border crossings, there are police there at the moment. So if you're driving across the border, you will be stopped. Uh, it, it's, there will be spot checks and so on. But what the Bavarians seem to have agreed with uh, Chancellor Merkel is that there will be three um, transit uh, facilities built there so that if you are an asylum seeker and you come to the border through Austria to the German border, the Bavarian border, and say you want to uh, uh, file for asylum, you'll be brought into this transit center, a closed center. Your application will be fast-tracked. People will see how this person filed for asylum elsewhere. And if they have, they will be told to go back to wherever they came from. Uh, and then, until now, this hasn't been happening because under German national asylum law, everyone is entitled to file for asylum and they have to do a full check of whether this is possible. And once somebody has arrived on German territory, they cannot just eject them, particularly if they've asked for asylum. So what's different now seems to be these transit camps will be a bit like the, the, the landing area of an airport. You know, until you get through passport control, you're not actually technically in the country. And uh, this is the hope of the Bavarians that uh, people, that lawyers will be able to draft some sort of a, a way to make this legally possible. The human rights people in Germany and some opposition parties are saying this is a farce, that you cannot uh, have sort of ex-territorial holding camps on German territory. Uh, you're either in Germany or you're out of Germany and people have a right to asylum. And just because the Bavarians are worried about an election doesn't mean you can strip people of their human rights. So we're not at all sure how it's going to work in legal terms. Um, we're not even sure how many people are going to come because asylum numbers have been dropping significantly. Uh, so far, they've had 18,000 people come to Germany this year who were registered elsewhere. So compared to the million that came in 2015, that's really no comparison. And the final thing is Austria. Um, Austria has a, a, a centre-right uh, populist uh, coalition government. They've been very hard. They've been cracking down on migrants since they came, since they came to power last year. And at the weekend, uh, Sebastian Kurz, 
who is the Austrian chancellor, he said, uh, I'm not, if, if Germany does anything to push people back over the border, we're not going to take them. Or if they do, we're going to uh, take measures that will uh, have a knock-on effect elsewhere. And even today, he's come out and said exactly that. He said, if Germany does what it's saying it's going to do, we're going to have to adopt appropriate measures on the border, for instance, uh, with Italy and Slovenia. So uh, this could be the domino effect that Angela Merkel was so worried about causing that she has had to yield for realpolitik reasons to her Bavarian colleagues. But this, if it comes to pass, these transit centres, this might have exactly the type of domino effect she hoped to avoid. Yeah, it's hard to see how this kind of arrangement is compatible with the open borders. That, that's something I think that's of paramount importance to Angela Merkel. I mean, she has argued that if you do away with the open borders, it's the beginning of the end of the EU. Well, this is the issue. Uh, you know, she has had to blink. Uh, she said it's a great compromise, but I think most people see this for her as a, as a huge political climb down. Uh, she's a much, a much weakened figure in the last years um, within her own party, but, but definitely the Bavarian, uh, more conservative wing of her party and the Bavarians who are also more conservative, they really sense a weakened chance that they can, push, they can push her around far more than they used to. And within her own party even, this notion of, uh, of, of transit camps is quite controversial, particularly because it's only going to be on the Bavarian board. Border. So, you know, Germany has borders with more European countries than anyone else in, in the EU. So, uh, the, you know, in the West, they're bordering with, with, with Luxembourg, with Belgium, with France. What if people there start calling for for uh, these centres? Now, Angela Merkel has come out saying we're not going to do anything without agreeing uh, bilateral agreements with other countries. But they really seem to be coming to these other countries and saying, we're, by the way, we're doing this. Would you like to sign up? And uh, many countries, it seems to be led by Austria, won't necessarily take too kindly to being dictated to in, uh, in, in migration policy just because of a regional election in Germany. So while they came out last night and said we've saved uh, this, we, we've we've uh, we've gotten we've uh, gotten rid of this, uh, we've defused this migration route, and we've saved our political alliance, and we've saved German coalition. Um, this may be a this may be a sort of a delayed. Detonation. We may not be seeing the end of this yet. And if this continues over the summer, if for some reason numbers start to uh, rise again, uh, I was reporting uh, during the week on numbers rising, coming back from, from Northern Europe. If, if there's some sort of a, a rise, you know, this is prime uh, human trafficker season on the Mediterranean. If pressure starts to rise again, uh, this could become uh, a problem once more for Germany and for its leaders. And Derek, there's another issue here than an internal issue, I suppose, for Germany in that, as we know, Merkel's CDU, the CSU, CS, CDU-CSU alliance, if you like, conservative alliance, is in coalition government with the left of centre SPD. And the SPD took a battering in last September's election after being in coalition with Merkel. It was very reluctant to go back into coalition with Merkel. So um, how do we know um, or do we know how will they view this deal? Yes, very cautiously and very suspiciously. Uh, you're right to point out the SPD is also a party struggling. Uh, they're a centre-left party. They are not a party traditionally known for its hard-handed approach to migrants, to borders and so on. And three years ago, they actually rejected uh, the notion of these transit camps back then. Um, the, the leader at the time called them arrest zones, and he said the SPD doesn't do arrest zones. 
the, the new leaders, uh, were two leaders on since then, uh, they've said they'll look at this very closely, but they said it can't be, it won't, shouldn't be taken as a given that they will just accept anything just to save Merkel's political alliance. So we're not over the hump yet. Um, the SPD really can't afford uh, to lose any more support. It's down below 20%. And if, 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 uh, if it is seen to be sort of a hostage to fortune of uh, Angela Merkel and their hard line crackdown on migrants, their left-wing voters are going to revolt and uh, might seek uh, support elsewhere. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an engine with many moving parts, and Angela Merkel doesn't have control of all of them. She's gotten one under control, her Bavarian allies, but another, another uh, gasket might blow in the next few days. And so do you think it's even possible the SPD could, could uh, try to block this deal and, and possibly even pull the, plug from, uh, the, the rug from under the government? I doubt it. Uh, I mean, the SPD, nobody really wants. I mean, the, the government has only been in power for uh, just over 100 days. It took almost six months to get a government, and the parties are depleted both financially and politically. Nobody, apart from the far-right AFD, the alternative for Deutschland, would really benefit from an election right now. So, I mean, that was what was in the back of people's minds uh, as they negotiated the deal on Monday night, and that's really what will be in the back of people's minds as they as they throw uh, tantrums about the details, like, for instance, in the SPD. So I don't really see an early election coming. Um, but the SPD might be feel that they're in a position to strike tough bargain, perhaps somewhere else with Angela Merkel. It seems to be open season on Chancellor Merkel. She's been, uh, you know, the, the untouchable of European politics for 30 years. But there's definitely a sense that there's blood in the water uh, and there are people circling. Uh, they might not necessarily go for her now. I think this whole, uh, this whole crisis actually rallied troops in her party behind her. Uh, but I think in the shorter term, uh, not even the medium term, uh, she will either reconsider her position uh, or somebody will make another go for her because they've seen she can be blackmailed and she can be forced to blink. And you've anticipated my final question there, Derek. I was going to ask you, how long more do you think Angela Merkel can maintain the appetite for these kinds of political battles? I really would be very, very surprised if she saw out the full term. She's sworn that she will do the full term. She says she was elected to that. She feels obliged to do that. But I think in the last week, she has this haunted look in her eye that I've not seen before. She looks exhausted. I mean, I, many people here, including myself, feel sorry for her. She's just doing one all-nighter after another, crises after crises. Donald Trump is waiting to, to give her another battering. Um, and I don't think she really feels there's anything more that can be gained. But, uh, but you know, she said 20 years ago she didn't want to be carried out of the political arena as a half-dead wreck. I'm afraid to say she's looking fairly wrecked at the moment. Uh, and perhaps uh, sooner than we think she might decide enough is enough. Derek, thank you. That was Derek Scully, our correspondent in Berlin. It's Brexit next, and it's more than two years now since the British electorate voted by a small majority to take their country out of the European Union. But it's still not clear what kind of relationship Britain wants to have with the EU when it exits the bloc next March. We may be about to find out. Dennis Staunton is on the line from London now, and he'll tell us more. Um, Dennis, all eyes will be on Chequers this Friday. That's the, the country retreat of the British Prime Minister. Theresa May has called a cabinet meeting at which ministers will be seeking to agree, finally, a common position on all of the key issues surrounding Brexit. What do we expect to emerge from, from this meeting? What's at stake here? Well, what's, uh, what ought to emerge from it is a white paper next week, which uh, we've been promised is going to set out in greater detail than ever before what exactly is the future relationship that Britain wants to have with the European Union after it leaves. 
The problem is that uh, everybody seems to have been kept in the dark so far, including most of the cabinet, about what exactly are Theresa May's proposals. We've had, for example, on customs, we've had these two proposals, a customs partnership and maximum facilitation, which is called MaxFAC. We don't have to go into the details about both either of those because essentially everybody agrees that uh, either one or other or both are unworkable or unacceptable. So now we heard this week that Theresa May has a new third proposal and this uh, is supposed to break the deadlock. And so we heard yesterday there was a third proposal, but now we hear, or has she? Because uh, there was some question over whether this third proposal has either been formulated or circulated. And nobody at Westminster this morning seemed to be certain what exactly this third proposal uh, was likely to mean. One theory which I heard was that what it would mean would be that you would uh, keep uh, the tariffs, the British tariffs would be aligned with the EU tariffs, and that you would then have technological and administrative fixes which would kind of help to, um, you know, to ease trade and keep it as frictionless as possible at the borders. But maybe that's what it is and maybe it isn't. The other th- thing we're expecting is that she will propose that there should be full alignment of regulations with the European single market for goods and possibly for agriculture, but not for services. And 80% of the British economy is services. And so this would just be for manufactured goods and possibly for agriculture. That's what we're hearing that it might include. So we don't know for sure what Theresa May is going to come up with on Friday. Um, But based on what you do know, Dennis, how do you think the proposals being floated so far will go down with the Brexiteers in her cabinet? Yes, the the, the Brexiteers don't like it. And uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, who's the leader of the Brexiteers on the back benches, he uh, issued a warning to Theresa May yesterday that she'd want to be careful. Uh, She's in danger of splitting the Conservative Party like Sir Robert Peel did with the Corn Laws in the middle of the uh, 19th century. And there was a a not very veiled threat that uh, they could get rid of her or bring down the government if she goes too far. Now, she, of course, Uh, early last year, set out three red lines for the negotiations. She said that Britain will leave the customs union, it will leave the single market, and will leave the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice. Now, some of those lines have been getting blurred in the last few months. So, for example, in the Mansion House speech earlier this year, Theresa May said that she would accept the, um, the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice over certain EU agencies which Britain would like to remain part of. And so, for example, uh, the UK would like to stay part of the European Medicines Agency or the Chemicals Agency. And and for those, she's not only prepared to accept ECJ, European Court of Justice jurisdiction, but also all of the rules and regulations of the European Union, uh, including new ones that would be brought in after Britain leaves uh, the European Union when Britain would no longer have any influence over uh, over these new rules. So, so that clearly breaches uh, one or two of the red lines on a strict interpretation. And what the Brexiteers are worried about is that she's now prepared to go much further. And what what their real fear is, is that what you'll end up with is what they call Brexit in name only. So you get out of the European Union, but you end up following their rules uh, on and regulations on goods and perhaps on uh, agri- agriculture, maybe even on services. There's some, some talk there might be some of that. And that also, because you'll be tied to their customs union and the customs tariffs, that you won't be able to go off and uh, forge these new trade deals around the world, with Bre- which Brexiteers think would be kind of the upside of Brexit. And so they're worried that, that, you know, that she's going to, that they'll get out of the European Union, but they won't really be properly out.
And Jacob Rees-Mogg's warning that you mentioned there that if any of these red lines are breached that she risks breaking up the Conservative Party it caused quite a backlash actually within the party didn't it? There was a big uh, a big outpouring of uh, of disapproval on his head especially on Twitter and that came from a number of government ministers and a number of Conservative backbenchers. Now some of these would be kind of usual suspects in that they would be Remainers but among the people who was kind of calling for party unity and warning against sniping at the Prime Minister were people like uh, Graham Brady, who's the chairman of the 1922 committee, which is all of the Conservative backbenchers, and people like Nicholas Soames, who's a kind of a Tory grandee, uh, grandson of Winston Churchill, all kinds of people who don't normally just seek out a scrap. They were uh, piling on. The, uh, the Brexiteers suspect that actually the government was all these people into action to try to frighten the Brexiteers and scare them off in advance. And there is certainly this kind of battle of wills going on, uh, where the uh, the question is whose bluff is going to be called. Because the one thing the Brexiteers know is that if they were to topple Theresa May, and they certainly would have enough uh, votes, enough members of parliament to trigger uh, a contest, because uh, you just need 48 Conservative MPs to write letters to say they'd like to have a, a contest. So they could probably trigger a contest. But the question is, do they have the numbers to win? And even if they did win and they toppled Theresa May, what are they going to get next? And if, for example, she's gone, does the uh, arithmetic of the House of Commons change in such a way that uh, the numbers in the, of the Tory rebels, the, the sort of the anti-Brexit rebels, will they increase because with the change of government? So despite all of uh, Theresa May's many deficiencies as a politician. Nonetheless, she seems for now to be the only one that can just about keep them together, or that's, that at least is what many on both wings of the party uh, believe. So there's a question of whether the Brexiteers' bluff will be called. And the one thing that the Brexiteers really care about is that on the 29th of March 2019, Britain should leave the European Union. Now, even if they leave on terms that are not satisfactory to them, it's much better for the Brexiteers that they leave on the 29th of March 2019 than that there might be some kind of delay, because if there's some kind of delay, that delay could go on forever. That's their fear. And Dennis, just coming back to this meeting on Friday, um, this compromise proposal that we're expecting from Theresa May on the customs issue, do you know, has she discussed this um, proposal that she has in mind with her senior ministers yet? Or are, are even they waiting to see what she has in mind? It seems that some of them at least are waiting to see what she has in mind or at least they were yesterday. And I know there was a cabinet meeting this morning where she uh, told them, uh, you know, what the agenda would be for the meeting at Chequers on Friday. But there was no discussion uh, at the meeting this morning of any of the options. So, uh, you know, I think with regard to the this mysterious third customs option, uh, certainly the whole cabinet has not yet seen it or hadn't by this morning. And uh, she has got a bit of a history of uh, springing things on people uh, at the last minute. And then they don't really have much time to consider it. But the, she does have one advantage in that uh, she's got the whole cabinet as opposed to her Brexit subcommittee. And on the Brexit subcommittee, there's now a majority of Brexiteers, whereas there's a kind of remain majority in the cabinet as a whole, although nobody's quite clear about exactly what the numbers are, because some of them are shifting sides with a view to their own ambitions uh, to replace Theresa May when the time comes. But still, uh, so, you know, I think they don't know exactly what the proposal is. They probably will before uh, they meet on Friday. But then there was talk that the white, white paper was going to be published on Monday. Now that seems to have been pushed back into later next week. And so it could be uh, as late as Thursday. 
uh, by the time it, it is published. So there may be time even after the Chequers meeting for a, for some negotiations and uh, you know and, and some kind of clearing up of whatever the text is before it actually is published. And Dennis, we're used to the can being kicked down the road in this Brexit story, but has the time now come when the British government really does have to reach a position? Yes, it has. There's really very little time left. The The idea is that these negotiations with the European Union should be wrapped up by October. Now, that date could slip a bit to November, even to December. But still, the, uh, you know, right now, they don't really have anything to negotiate with Britain on because Britain hasn't said what it wants. And so this really is the moment when uh, they have to say, at least most of what they want. There's some chance that the white paper won't include a proposal on immigration, for example. And so they may say this is the kind of trade arrangement we want, the kind of relationship we want with the single market. And now let's talk about that. And later in September or something, we'll make a proposal about how you deal with free movement of people or uh, or labor. There's a new phrase they've come up with about a labor uh, mobility framework. And so I think really what uh, what they're hoping for is that uh, Theresa May will be able to persuade the cabinet to make a bold enough offer to the European Union that the European Union won't immediately just reject it and say this is completely impossible. So that the offer would be enough to get Britain onto the edge of the European dance floor. And then that Michel Barnier can somehow waltz them into the middle of the floor or further over. Uh, but the, the thing is that the offer has to be fairly bold even to get to that point. And then once they're on the dance floor, all kinds of things can happen. And then, for example, once you start to negotiate the details from the starting point of where uh, the white paper comes out, you then, by the time you get to September, uh, the logic of that will demand probably further concessions on the part of uh, the UK. And then Theresa May will have to go back to her cabinet probably in September and go through uh, a similar sort of exercise to try to get it over there, uh, over that line. And then we see where we get. That at least is the hope. The danger is that she is unable to get something even uh, bold enough to kind of start the conversation. And that then the European Union will say, look, this is a complete waste of time. The only thing that we can really talk to you about is a bare bones uh, free trade agreement like we have with Canada, what they call Canada Dry, uh, with nothing really extra. And that for a lot of British business, particularly for those big companies, manufacturing companies like Airbus and BMW and all those who've been making warnings, that's something of a disaster because a bare bones free trade agreement is not going to take care of the problems of uh, supply chains that go all the, way, all the way across Europe. And of course, the other thing it doesn't deal with is the problem of the Irish border. Well, Dennis, reluctant as I am to stop the music, I think we'll bring the dance to an end for now because I think we'll have a lot more to discuss on this next week or the week after. Thanks for that. <laughs> Very good. Thank you. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.